Today's guest is Jim Manderos. Jim is the co-owner of New Media Comedy Worldwide, LLC. Jim is also a stand-up comedian, producer, writer, and actor. Jim has a stand-up special on Amazon Prime, and it's called Not Dead Yet. Jim is also the creator of the web series Living in Exile. Chris Rock even said that Living in Exile might be the funniest show I've ever seen. Please welcome Jim Menderos. Hello, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So, I start off every episode by asking, what's the craziest heckler you have ever had? Oh, um, uh, there's a little bit of bad language in this one. You sure you want me to do it? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, I, there was a renowned comedy club in, uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, that ran on Sunday nights that the comedians that toured it would affectionately call Vietnam. Okay. And um, <clears throat> half the room was filled with uh, army personnel, and the other half was filled with very drunken rednecks. Mm. So when they introduced me as from New York, uh, a, a very drunk redneck uh, started screaming, well, you're from New York, so you must be... And then he hurled a racial epitaph at me oh, uh, for somebody who's Jewish. And, uh, <clears throat> and I'm there like, I'm not, you need to calm down. But he just keeps screaming it and Ooh, screaming it. Geez. And of course, all his drunk buddies are laughing. I finally calm him down and I tell him I'm not. And I get on stage and the stage is a good six feet above mm-hmm. the audience. Um, this is when I'm much younger. Uh, <laughs> in fact, i was close to your age at that time Whoa. than I am to the age I'm at now. And uh, about 10 minutes goes, and he goes, well, if you're from New York and you're not a, and he says it again, then you must be a, and he yells out another uh, hate, uh, hate comment uh, for someone who happens to be gay. Uh, <clears throat> and he, my choices are I'm either the one racial epitaph or I'm the gay slur. Oh. And uh, he keeps yelling it out, and I'm tired of it absolutely miserable with his behavior so in the middle of my set i jump off the stage onto his table jump next to him and i grabbed his face while he was still sitting down with both my hands and i kissed him oh jeez like right on the right on the lips oh jeez because uh, if you're gonna accuse me of something let's see how it feels okay and then i calmly walked back up on stage and continued my bit and the audience is howling because they know what I've done yeah. well he loses his mind and he starts trying to attack me oh. like he's trying to jump up onto the stage to get me and the stage is pretty high mm-hmm. so he can't really do it because he's mm-hmm. drunk and uh, his friends are pulling him away um, and, and you know it, it wound up that some of the army people took offense to how he's behaving so they started fighting with him Oh, and a geez. full a full on brawl just that started happening. Crazy. And about ten minutes into it, a police officer just calmly waved me off stage and, and escorted me out and said, You really should pack up your car and go home. Because yeah. it's not gonna be safe for you in town tonight. So that's uh that was the the uh the most dynamic heckler story ever. Where was the bouncer in all of that? Uh well, you're assuming that every club has a bouncer. Oh. You're assuming that every club cares about hecklers. There are some clubs that don't. Oh. And that was one of those. It was a bad room for comedy. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't have been doing it, but they did do it. So 
We all we all pay the price. But I was paid in advance, so I was fine with it. Yeah. You know, I I have my money. I'm going home. Mm-hmm. There are some crazy hecklers. I was reading this book by um an autobiography by Kevin Hart, and he was talking about how he was performing once, and like like he was performing and like I forget like how who where he was, but um he was talking there was stand up comedy and like um this was during the beginning of his year. Um another um few guys went up at the beginning of his set and the like hecklers like it was just the only people in the audience were the hecklers. There's like five hecklers. Yeah. No other people. And they just started heckling the person. So then Kevin Hart had to calm them down. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an unfortunate um, reality of our business that sometimes when, especially when you get to a club that doesn't care, mm-hmm. the audience can think that they run the run the room. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and uh, Kevin started in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. which is a really rough comedy town. They, their okay. audience is pretty vocal. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, and, and actually, you're starting up in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. so when you hit Boston, you'll find they're also pretty vocal. But the mm-hmm. difference is, in Boston, they get a little vocal, the bouncers will bounce them right out. Yeah. Down in Philadelphia, you get a little vocal, the bouncers are sitting in the back going, oh, this guy's funny. You know, oh. and it's a different mindset. Yeah, like, um... How, like, I, sometimes, like, is Steve Hoffister, like, do you know who that is, Steve Hoffister? No. He's this, like, guy, Steve Hoffister, I don't know how to pronounce his yeah, last name. I know how to, yeah, I know what you're talking about now. Um, yeah, like, like, imagine him in your scenario, like, like, based on how he, like, handles hecklers nowadays. I don't know if you ever watched his heckler in the video, the, like, various where he takes on hecklers, but, like, I, like, he would do something pretty crazy to that person. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there's a time and a place to do it. And um, back then when I was all 22 years old and, you know, mm-hmm. young and and, uh, and could fight if I needed mm-hmm. to fight, it would have been fine. But there's also times where the most prudent thing to do is just go, you yeah. know what, this isn't safe, mm-hmm. I'm leaving. Yeah. So yeah. in your acts, you talk a lot about crazy things you did as a kid. What's the craziest yeah. thing you did as a kid? I ran away to Mexico when I was 12. Wait, I thought that was... I thought you were exaggerating on that joke. Nope. That's, that's almost exact. Um, and, uh, and and you know what? I, I think because of how well planned out it was, it probably wasn't even the most insane thing I did. I used to ride New York City subways in the middle of the night when I was eight, nine years old. I, you know, I... I a couple of things. Number one is um, parenting situation. You know, if you have good parents, and, mm-hmm. you know, if my parents would have been more present, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't have done half the crap mm-hmm. I did. But number two, which I think is more important, is that we learned over time that, you know, some things aren't safe for kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so I was always exposed to things at a young age that everyone thought, oh, this is normal. Mm-hmm. That right now I have a, I have a 15-year-old. And I think of the stuff I was doing at 15, and I look at her and I'm like, no, you're not allowed to do any of that. Yeah, that is insane. So, like, did you go back to your house after running away to Mexico? Oh, yeah. I I used to run away, and I ran away every year between 9 and when I moved out. Mm. So every year between 9 and 16, I ran away somewhere. So it was like a reverse holiday for you? Uh, 
Well, you know what it was? It, it was just, I was going to see the world. I was going to mm-hmm. see more than just the block. My mom uh, always said that um, my father was a merchant marine from Greece. And mm-hmm. he eventually immigrated here. And when he immigrated here, he met my mom. But when he was uh, a kid, he was already sailing on ships. Jeez. And he had seen the whole world. And so for me, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm yeah. doing the exact same thing that you did at your age. And I think it terrified him, but I think he also understood why I did it. Yeah. Um, but in retrospect, no. I, you know, yeah. if, if I had a kid that was just like me, I probably would have been... Um, I probably would have been in jail for spanking them. Yeah. Uh, too much. Yeah, a lot of times at school, I just tell kids at school, just like bluntly, I just say, you need to be spanked. <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, they think I'm joking and everything, but I, but in myself, I'm thinking they really do need to be. Yeah. There's some behavior that's, you know, not forgivable. I think about what I put my parents through, um, but you don't realize that when you're in mm-hmm. the middle of it, you know. Yeah. So much of, of um, I would say from, you know, being a young kid up until I, I'm in my early to Mm mid-30s, I wasn't very well behaved. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a lot of supervision. And so for me, all the stuff I did during those ages, I I look back at it and I go, yeah, I don't regret, I don't regret it. I don't regret running away to Mexico Mm -hmm. when I was 12. It was fun as hell, you know. Um, But what I do regret was how terrified my family must have been when I was missing. I do regret what I put them through. So there's always a little feeling of remorse, even when it's not totally. Mm-hmm. I want to go to Mexico when I'm older, but I'm not going to run away. Um, yeah, try not to run away. Yeah, I, I, I spoke to your mom. I think yeah. she'd be worried. I, I used to, like, try to run away, but then I'd just, like, sit, like, I wouldn't even be half a mile away. I'd just sit there, like, waiting for someone to come over and be like, what you doing over here? Like, one of my family <laughs> members. And I was like, why isn't anybody coming? So i just walk back to my house. Yeah, I get that. A little bit of attention. I totally yeah. get that. I was an attention. Like, I needed attention when I was, like, a really young. Well, like, well, I still probably don't say to this day. Okay, I get that. I'm gonna. So, um, what motivated you to create Living in Exile? Um, alright, so I. In, uh. And everyone actually has this backwards so you get a bit of a scoop mm-hmm. um when i was in my 40s i had a whole bunch of friends who were all getting divorces at the same time and they were all making the same bad decisions Whoa. you know they, they were all falling for the wrong woman all having a rebound relationship all dating somebody too young um there, there were people who haven't dated in 20 years that were trying to date multiple women at the same time and it was like every one of my friends was making the same bad decisions. Um, So I wrote it basically, you know, playing off of their bad decisions. Um, Between when I wrote it and when it got released, I also got divorced. So everyone thinks that you wrote it about you. And I'm there like, no, I I didn't. If I wrote it about me, it'd be just basically a guy sitting around depressed. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) all this crazy stuff isn't, wasn't my MO, but it was everybody else's MO. So it was kind of observing it. And um, I've been a writer most of my life, so you 
most of your best stories are spent observing people mm-hmm. and then creating scenarios yeah. with which to tell that story mm-hmm. in a way that's accessible to most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that is... Yeah, I do get what you're saying, because some of my best jokes, I just think about it. Like, um, one of the jokes... I um was in the city with my mom, the joke about how she brought me into a strip. Well, she didn't actually, but how I exaggerated. My mom brought me into a bar once when I was in the city because I had to use the bathroom, and I exaggerated that all the way to her bringing me into a strip club. Like, if she never brought me into a bar, I would have never gotten, like, that story. Something so small can turn into this, like, giant story. Yeah, we, we tend to, as comedy writers, write small and weave big. Mm-hmm. We take the smallest of ideas and make the biggest deal out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're able to control the size of what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, like, so, what was it like, like, filming Living in Exile? Um, well, so, I, my company, New Media Comedy, um, got some money. Uh, we got a, a little bit of seed money from uh, uh, a network who mm-hmm. was interested in it, and they gave us enough money to film a pilot. And they, what they wanted was a 10-minute pilot. And because I've been in production so long, and because I owned a company, I was able to take that same mm-hmm. money when they were supposed to get one 10-minute yeah. episode and wrote seven 22-minute episodes. Um, and we were able to film it because I was able to negotiate with people and get actors to donate their time for free. Um, I wound up directing it. I wasn't supposed to be in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to go to another actor who had a panic attack the night before we we're filming. Uh-oh. And when I can't, uh, you know, I've always been the second banana on a series. Mm-hmm. I can't be the lead. Yeah. And uh, we had already put everything into place and spent all of our money. Mm-hmm. So when I called my partners and I went, um, the main actor just quit. They went, guess what you're doing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how mm-hmm. I, I wound up being in it as opposed to just directing it, because I just wanted to direct Mm -hmm. it. Um, So everything fell into place budget-wise. It was incredibly fun, because I filmed it with people I absolutely adore. Mm -hmm. I I kind of uh, have a policy, and I've had it for a number of years now, like over a decade now, um, to have absolutely, you know, zero BS in my life. And if Mm -hmm. somebody's miserable to work with, yeah. I don't need to work with them. If somebody's mm-hmm. not fun to, you know, to, to hang out with, I'm not hanging out with mm-hmm. them. So on that, on that shoot in particular, I was able to get all the actors I wanted, mm-hmm. all the comics I wanted, you know, all, all of, you know, all of the good people that I wanted to work with. Yeah. And that was so incredibly fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I was actually sad when it ended. I was actually sad we, when we finished filming it. But, you know, when I look back at it, it still holds up. I mm-hmm. mean, there are, there are still people who send me emails now going, hey, I watched your series like a month ago, and dear God, that's that's like my divorce, or that's like yeah. what happened to my brother when he got divorced. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I get it. It did a lot of things different as mm-hmm. well. Um, it's a sitcom where you have to watch every episode in order yeah. to understand it, which is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, sitcoms don't operate that way. And it, it's also... Um, it's also a love story told from the male point of view, uh-huh. which doesn't actually happen that much in television. So okay. it had a lot of unique features to it that I'm also proud of, too. So artistically and also the actual work, incredibly fun. Yeah. Now, do, do I wish it would have gotten renewed for 20 seasons and made me 
$800 million? Absolutely. Yeah. But the work was very satisfying when I got to do it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I used to, um, like, I, like, um, attended, like, this workshop in the summer. Well, it's sort of, like, it was, like, the, I started stamp coming when I was about 10. At that point, I was about 10, and I did it when I was 11. Like, I would do this thing, and, like, we would make this short, like, five-minute film, and it would be, like, on this TV program. Not a big one, but, like, a small one. And I get what you're saying. Like, no, definitely not all the kids were fun to work with, but the ones that were, like, it felt fun to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you're working with people that you enjoy working with and you're working on projects that you enjoy working mm-hmm. on, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. You feel a mm-hmm. sense of accomplishment. Yeah. It feels like you're building something together. Mm-hmm. When you're working with people you don't like or you're working on projects you don't believe in, mm-hmm. then it feels like work. Yeah, I read about that before. Like, um, it was actually, I think the same thing applies to podcasting. Like, um, I was reading this book on podcasting. It's like, if you don't believe in the podcast you're making, then why are you even making it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you have to love the work you do. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you occupy so much of your life with your work that you really should enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah, it's like one third of your life. Like, the yeah. first question people ask you a lot of times when they meet you is beside, like, is, like, what what do you do for a living? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, for a living, I make people laugh. Mm-hmm, yeah. the greatest job in the world. Yeah, like, I, um, like, just getting that, like, laughter, I don't, like, it just feels so good. Like, a feeling that I've never felt, like, before. Like, like it's just, like moment that's different from all other moments it's just like happiness it feels like yeah i um somebody asked me to explain what the uh, attraction of stand-up was and that moment when you're standing on a stage in front mm-hmm. of a live audience mm-hmm. and you finish the joke and then the laughter comes back towards you oh yeah i love that and washes over you mm-hmm. they're like oh yeah this is why i'm doing this mm-hmm you get it yeah, like, a lot of times also, like, writing isn't as fun as performing, but that point when, like, you're collaborating with another person, even, like, a lot of times I work on the jokes with, like, my mom. Like, I, like, tell her, and she's, I, like, practice a lot of my jokes on my mom. Like, oh, does this make you laugh? But, like, even stuff like that, like, if I'm writing a joke, like, it just feels so, f- like, and I know that's going to be funny. It just feels so fun. Yeah. Yeah, that, it absolutely is. For me, it's, um, I do love being in front of the audience, but there is a, a really unique satisfaction mm-hmm. of writing something and creating yeah. something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just a thought, and now it has a tangible quality yeah. that people can enjoy. I, mm-hmm. I like that. For me, that's that's still a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of fun. Yeah, it is. Um, So... Yeah, so, um, um, so you talked about, did, I was reading something about, a, um, like, a podcast description about a podcast you were in, and the, it was about writing for WWE. Did you write for that, for WWE? I did, for a very brief period of time. When, when you take a job as a television writer, um, scripts are not what you're selling. You're mm-hmm. selling your ability to write all the time. So a lot of companies have... You know, short-term openings, mm-hmm. 
and they ask you to write. Uh, and I've always been a wrestling fan, so, you know, can you fill in and, and do a little bit of writing mm-hmm. on this show? Absolutely. Um, so you, you go in and you write, and it was a short-term contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's was a part of me that, I don't know if you like wrestling, but I... I oh, I used to... Wrestling. I used to love him when I was in kindergarten. Like, I would hate, I'm being honest, anyone who didn't like John Cena. Like, I'd start, like, cussing at them. I'd just be an angry little monster. Yeah. That's all I wanted was WWE action figures. I would even, like, you know, thumbnails for videos. I'd, like, pretend like it was, like, an episode of it, and I'd, like create the little thumbnail with my action figures at the beginning and then have that little like scene when I was playing with my action figures. Yeah. So, you know, it's the same thing. When you love, when you love watching something as a kid and you get a a chance as an adult to do a little bit of work on that project, you're there like, wow, this is going to be fun. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of stress because what people forget is that it's live. All the events are live and, you have to be prepared for anything. Somebody could get injured, mm-hmm. and you have to change all your plans. You know, um, a, an accident could happen in the ring, and all your plans get changed. So it, it's um, it's always been, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this is a, a tougher thing that people think uh, to understand, because um, I've done stuff there, I've done some stuff on Saturday Night Live. When you're working on a live show, you have to prepare for every contingency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, I know this sounds like a weird question, but, like, I, I've always wanted to know, how did they do that thing, like, where blood is caused? Uh, different people do it different ways. Some people do it cutting. Um, some people do it, you know, uh, there's lots of different ways to mm-hmm. do it. Mostly it's blood pellets. You have a, a little capsule that you put in your mouth. Anytime somebody's bleeding through the mouth, it's just theatrical blood. Oh. So there's different ways to get it done. You can even put a pellet in your hand and hit somebody, and it'll it'll show up on their on their skin that mm-hmm. way. That looks a little bit faker because you have to hit them somewhere where there's hair. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it'll look like oh, it just washed off, and magically yeah. there's no cut. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to know what you're doing for that to happen. Whoa, that's a lot of effort. Like. A lot of times, like, when I watch shows, like, and I really think about all the stuff that's put into them, I just feel, like, a good appreciation for them. Like, people had to buy all this stuff. Like, there was a ton of work that's into, that goes into it. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's so much more mm-hmm. that goes into it than you can possibly imagine. You know, um, you know, it, it's... The, the one thing I, I will say about, you know, working with live events and, and working with things like blood and, and all of that kind of stuff is it helps to tell the story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when you're seeing somebody that, that's bleeding and they're the underdog and eventually they win, it just makes the win that much more satisfying. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. So I really enjoyed this interview with you and have a great day and thanks Thank you, everyone, for listening, and goodbye.